Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Hans Holbein the Younger. My first guest, Anne T. Woolett, is a co-curator of Hans Holbein Capturing Character in the Renaissance, which is at the J. Paul Getty Museum through June 9th, 2022. The exhibition presents Holbein as German, but transnational, and situates his portraiture between not only influential court figures, but the leading intellectuals of contemporary Switzerland and England. Remarkably, it's the first major Holbein exhibition in the U.S. Co-organized with the Morgan Library and Museum in New York, Holbein features over 50 objects, including 33 Holbein paintings and drawings. The excellent exhibition catalog was published by the Getty. We'll have links to purchase it on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, Shannon Vittoria on Jules Tavernier and the LM Pomo. But first, Auntie Woolett, after the break. Point of Departure, 1958 to Present at Sheldon Museum of Art, draws its title from a 1958 jazz recording by Andrew Hill that both exemplifies and defies its time. The exhibition surveys the evolution of abstraction from the late 1950s, after the first wave of artists associated with abstract expressionism, to the present. The artists featured in Point of Departure embrace the primacy of their materials, using visual language rooted in observation. Works by Tony Bashara, Ross Blechner, Lisa Corinne Davis, Ron Gorchov, Carmen Herrera, Norman Lewis, Jill Nathanson, Odili Donald Odita, Larry Poons, Mavis Pusey, Stanley Whitney, Sue Williams, William T. Williams, Terry Winters, and others show fluid interplay between abstraction and depictive references. Point of Departure is on view at Sheldon Museum of Art from August 13th through December 31st, 2021. For more information, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. On view at the Getty Villa Museum through January 24th, 2022, Rubens, Picturing Antiquity, is the first exhibition to focus on Flemish master Peter Paul Rubens' fascination with the art and literature of ancient Greece and Rome. Named an essential art exhibition to see this fall by the Los Angeles Times, the show features thrilling drawings, oil sketches, and monumental paintings juxtaposed with rarely shown ancient objects, including exquisite gems owned by Rubens himself. Heroic nudes, fierce hunts, splendid military processions, and Bacchic celebrations illustrate Rubens' ability to translate an array of sources into new subjects. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts in Omaha, Nebraska, presents Amy Dang live at Low End on December 2nd at 8 p.m. Central. Omrita, Amy Cower Dang, is a South Asian-American Sikh composer, music producer, vocalist, and sitarist from Baltimore. Combining ideas from South Asian music with synthesizers, MIDI controllers, lighting design, and gestural movement, her work invites the audience to reframe their assumptions about the colonial history of music, the arts, technology, and performance, and its place in the contemporary musical landscape. Performances at Low End are an integral part of Bemis Center's Sound Art and Experimental Music program and are presented with lead support by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. This one-of-a-kind program provides unique resources to support the research, creation, and presentation of new work by artists working in sound, composition, voice, and experimental forms of music, and Low End, a live music venue. Low End features free live shows by local, national, and international sound artists, composers, and experimental musicians. These performances aim to not only build new audiences and a greater appreciation for non-traditional forms of sound, but also to liberate artists to take risks and present truly avant-garde work. Free admission. 
In-person attendance requires RSVP at bemacenter.org slash events. The performance will also stream live at twitch.tv slash bemacenter and at facebook.com slash bemacenter. And we're back. Ann Woolett, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Oh, thank you very much, Tyler. The first two pictures in the catalog, the extraordinary catalog for your Holbein show, are Holbein's portraits of Erasmus and Thomas More. The show doesn't start with them. The show in LA doesn't start with them, but the catalog does. Why did you want to start there in, in your representation of Holbein's work in the catalog? Well, the catalog captures, I hope, um, a capsule of the contributions that Holbein makes to portraiture in the Renaissance of this period. These are two key figures in his career, two men who really supported him at key moments. Erasmus supports Holbein as a young artist, gives him the letters of introduction to England in particular. And uh, Thomas More, a good friend of Erasmus's, who receives these letters and accepts the recommendation and then provides Holbein, crucially, with important commissions, uh, at least two commissions for more himself, but also introduces him into the circle of humanists and sort of erudite, uh, learned individuals at the English court in the mid-20s. And that circle of patrons goes on to support Holbein at a kind of larger extent, different individuals indeed, in the 30s when Holbein returns. So, the, and these, I have to say, these two images are very different ways of approaching portraiture. So in the introduction, for which they are the objects in the exhibition, illustrations, it helps introduce some of the range of Holbein's portraiture from the smaller portable roundel format, which is a very intimate format, to the larger format, the more descriptive, if you will, the interior view of his sitters. Holbein's approach to portraiture was informed by excuse the grandiose term, the philosophy of Erasmus and Moore by, by their humanism. How were they all swimming in the same ideological soup? Yeah, it's a really fascinating period. And I hope that for our viewers and uh, of the exhibition that they can begin to imagine what must have been a very stimulating period in which there were proximities were possible, even over distance and time. So, there are ways of exchanging ideas, political ideas, philosophical ideas, and also uh, exchanging them, of course, in terms of conversation. But you know, for Holbein, who is, we have to remember, is a craftsman, essentially. He's, he is connected with these major intellectuals and I think must have had a decent enough education, maybe in a Latin training that enabled him to communicate and be accepted in these circles. But his function as, a, as an artist was more as a craftsman. He is able to give visual form and to articulate the ideas visually that are being shared in printed form. So uh, the exhibition highlights a moment in time where books are being produced in Basel, particularly as a major center of printing. Uh, this is where Erasmus prefers to have his works published. And there are exchanges between these individuals in different countries uh, through not only publications, but through correspondence. Holbein uh, shares with someone like Erasmus uh, and even someone like Thomas Cromwell, who was a very, also a learned figure. In fact, we don't think of him this way, but he was someone who was cultured. There was a certain amount of itinerancy. So Holbein moves between different cities where there are vigorous cultures, some affected more or less by the Reformation and its impact on images, but still, 
areas of ideas and transformation. And so this is a, a moment in which being mobile <laughs> and having exposure to the exchange of ideas in these different places was very important. Oh, we will be moving Holbein around Europe and the UK here in a little bit. He certainly did get around. You write in the catalog that Holbein's portraiture was an engagement with arguments about whether the written word or the painted image could best convey an individual's interior qualities. How do we see or how might we see that discourse play out across Holbein's oeuvre? Uh, you know, may, maybe an example or two from the work and maybe an example or two from the textual discourse of his time? Yes, I mean, this is a very old idea that comes from antiquity that is of interest to Renaissance thinkers in particular. And Erasmus, as uh, Peter van de Kuhlen, I think, writes very effectively in the catalog with someone who was very committed to the efficacy, if we will, of the written word, the ability to convince and to convey nuances and interiority. And, of course, Erasmus, as Peter also helps us understand, was someone who appreciated images, but I think he always remained someone committed to the letter, <laughs> the written word. My belief is actually that Holbein, from whom we have to remember, there we have no personal correspondence, no, no written testament of his thoughts or his belief system. He enters into this argument purely through skill, through innovation, through ingenuity. And we see his contribution in particular to portraiture, which is becoming a, a genre that's open to a much wider range of people than before, in the very individual solutions he comes up with to tell us uh, something about the sitter and the variety of sitters that he's able to portray. The exhibition itself focuses primarily on individuals who may have had important associations, but many of whom were not courtiers, so merchants and also uh, prominent female sitters, maybe some of whom are not easy for us to specify. But a, you know, a good example would be one of the, um, you know, the great portraits, one of the great favorites, I think, um, in all of our kind of Holbein experience is a lady with a squirrel and a starling, thought to be Anne Lovell from the National Gallery in London. A very spectacular representation where you feel a very strong presence of the individual. It's very contained and decorous portrayal of, of a woman as was appropriate. But to this portrait, Holbein brings a second level of language, if you will, with allusions to heraldry and also to rebuses and to verbal games. And so these are identifiable through the presence of the animals in particular. Fantastic pet squirrel that Anne holds by a silver chain. <laughs> the squirrel is nibbling a nut. And then the marvelous starling, the bird that sits uh, in the foliage and seems to be kind of singing into her ear even. And, it, you know, it took actually uh, some modern viewer quite a while to figure out actually what all those elements might mean. And it really was in 2004 when all of these elements are better understood to help us understand that it's, we see a member of the Lovell family and it's probably Anne Lovell. And each of those elements are part of the, the visual representation of the Lovell family. The squirrel is on their coat of arms. And then the starling is this very playful, fun idea in English of the time, which would have sounded similar to the name of the town, the village near their estate in Norfolk, East Harling. This is, this is Holbein engaging in a process that was popular um, and engaged many you know, intellectuals and also those well-educated lay people who wanted to be associated with humanism and humanist thinking. So the, the exhibition draws attention to the genre of personal devices 
the way that you have an emblem that represents you and your beliefs or your aspirations. And we find these throughout Holbein's oeuvre, not just in portraits, but in the designs that he makes for jewelry, for paint, you know, in paintings that represent personal devices. We have some of those. So it's a very rich culture and one that's uh, you know, derived, as I mentioned, from, from, a, from an antique basis in many cases, but is revived and becomes um, an inspired, if you will, uh, literary and visual art form uh, in its own right in this period. Well, now that we know a bit about Holbein and his interests, let's follow him around Europe, as it were. <laughs> we started with Erasmus, and of course, Holbein comes to know Erasmus in Basel. How was Basel important to Holbein's early career, and how might we see that represented in the show? Yes, it's fascinating. Holbein moves to Basel as a young artist, perhaps even before he's a, a fully considered a master. He's and he's the son of an extremely well-respected and successful artist, also known as Hans Holbein the Elder. And younger Hans are the subject of our exhibition, and his elder brother Ambrosius move to a place that has a university, where there's a kind of vibrant intellectual culture associated with that. Also, this printing industry, which is considered, you know, outstanding, one of the leading uh, locations for the making of beautiful and, and important books. And it is a city that's thriving in other ways. There are multiple churches. So if you're an artist that needs um, to establish their career, there are many opportunities for different types of painting. And in this location and also other cities in Switzerland, so Holbein makes use of this sort of base in Basel through connections through his father and also other supporters to to work in places like Luzerne. And he, he does, um, again, a very kind of, uh, to me, quite interesting range of work there from individual to kind of design works, working with the publishers of, the, for example, the Johannes Froben, to things like decorative house facades, which sadly don't exist anymore, but we know from some other sources were illusionistic, had very dramatic uses of space, and would have been extremely striking kind of form of um, exterior painting. He also painted portraits of leading figures, such as the mayor, his wife of Basel and senior civic leaders von Herzenstein's. So it's a place where he's able to make connections immediately and is supported again through connections with uh, significant individuals such as Bonifacius Amerbach. So in the Getty presentation of the exhibition, the viewer will uh, begin in the first section and see some of the key uh, works that Holbein produced in this period, and one of the most important portraits is uh, the portrait of Bonifacius Amerbach. And it really establishes for us, I think, a wonderful way of understanding how Holbein may have worked frequently with his sitters, which is to say, he seems to have had a rapport with them. It, I don't think it's too much uh, to say that he collaborated in a sense to create the likeness in the end that the sitter really wanted. And then in the case of the Amrabach portrait, which is relatively small, um, you have this uh, you know, very handsome sort of almost three-quarter view of Amrabach himself. And then Amrabach composed a, an inscription to go with his likeness. It's, uh, it appears in the painting as a plaque <laughs> with beautiful Roman lettering. This was something that, Roman, uh, that Holbein was very adept at. He had tremendous dexterity. But it, uh, Amrabach composed it, and we will have this sort of scrap of 
manuscript <laughs> that shows his some of his drafts, not all of them. He tried very many things, but it's um, essentially praises the likeness as being lifelike, as being true to nature. And it's a, a an ode to the painter, if you will, composed by the sitter and then executed by the painter. But despite all of his efforts, uh, you know, Horvath actually decided to change the wording a little bit after the painting had been completed. <laughs> so Holbein has to go in and and uh, change the part of the phrasing. But nonetheless, there's this back and forth uh, idea. And I think Holbein takes this, this intimacy and this kind of flexibility, if you will, to his relationships with uh, other um, sitters that he has. And even, you know, we talked about the lady with the squirrel. I think this to me suggests a similar kind of willingness to adjust and to refine. And so lady with the squirrel, the squirrel and perhaps also the starling are, are added in a very, very late stage after the rest of the painting is, is for the most part finished. So uh, so Basilisa is a huge jumping off point and I think it, it gives, um, it stimulates Holbein to follow his ambitions and he's looking for places in which he can exercise this talent. And in fact, you know, the Reformation is really gathering some momentum. There may not be enough commissions for religious paintings, for altarpieces, for example, for other types of civic commission. Uh, so he starts looking around and we know that he, he looks uh, to France as a possible opportunity maybe to work at the court there, that that doesn't seem to work out. And then, you know, England, of course, being somewhat buffered from changes um, associated with Reformation somewhat there, also not a place with a strong tradition of portrait painting yet. So this becomes his goal. You know, before we totally move on from Basel, I want to ask one more thing about this great, fascinating intersection of written description and painted portrait. The plaque you mentioned in this picture is held up by a nail, and it's kind of a nail that pictorially joins the plaque to the visage that that Holbein is painting. I myself do not know the trompe l'oeil art history of when artists began to have fun painting trompe l'oeil nails, but it certainly continued into the, you know, in, into like this week. Should we take it that Holbein is absolutely having that kind of fun here? <laughs> uh, you know, the thing about Holbein is that he can convince us almost any material, I think, you know, this, this nail, which is somehow, you know, it's also really part of the tree. Yeah, it could be a branch. It's kind of hard to tell. Yeah, you have this kind of intersection of, of artifice and nature. You know, this is this is central to Holbein's way of playing with us. You know, it's one of the great delights, I think, of his art, actually, is that you get drawn in because you think, well, how did he do it? It's so convincing, this material, whether it's fur or gold, jewelry or whatever. And then with a little bit of time, you realize, in fact, that he's he's manipulated you <laughs> or there isn't enough space for something or he's turned it so that you can see it in a way that one couldn't normally see it. So absolutely in this in this painting, this portrait of Auerbach, uh, these all these things come together, the, the natural and the and the, ma- and the man-made, and so the way that that frame, which is very kind of square and heavy, kind of fits over this little twig almost. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really interesting, and, and it's something that I think Holbein goes on to develop. This painting precedes the use of backgrounds in his portraits, um, and we'll have several examples in the exhibition where it's this beautiful deep blue over which one sees mobile tendrils of a plant that essentially he creates, the fig vine. You mentioned that Holbein goes from Basel to London, but on his way to London, he stops in Antwerp. 
At, at, at this time, Antwerp, of course, is a major port city, a major artistic center, a, a huge center of print production, too. We don't believe we have any paintings or drawings from Holbein's stay in Antwerp. But what do you think he might have taken from the place? I think the Antwerp stop was absolutely essential. In fact, he's he goes through Antwerp a couple of times. It's a natural stopping point, I think, between London and Basel. And I think it, it was a real center for artistic exchange. It has a, a large guild of artists. There's also these various corporations that are have a sort of humanist aspect to them of dramatists and of playwrights and, and poets and, and all of these other arts that are associated in a way with visual representation. He would have wanted to meet the leading artist, and it sounds like he probably did meet uh, Quentin Metzeis. And uh, Albrecht Schurer, of course, had been there previously, not long before. And so uh, word of the very sumptuous welcome that Durer received and the way that he was able to make his presence uh, known and kind of, I think, share his own approach to portraiture would have been an important sort of precursor to Holbein's own arrival you know, Holbein, I think, also probably had a chance to see portraiture and the major altarpieces that were on view in the Cathedral of Our Lady, actually not yet a cathedral, but the Church of Our Lady, a very large structure, and, and the the local other local churches there. There was a, a close correspondence, in fact, between the government members, some of whom, one in particular, um, he was very good friend of Erasmus's, um, Peter Killis, um, Petrus Aegidius, as he was known in Latin, uh, who had a great interest in in culture and in art and uh, would have sort of been very interested in, in meeting perhaps someone like Holbein. But he's he's still a young man, and, and Erasmus's introduction at this point was was supportive but not effusive, essentially. So uh, it's, it's interesting to speculate about how Holbein himself might have made uh, personal connections. But, you know, looking back at that moment... It probably also established some relationship with the Flemish community, not just of painters, but perhaps also of goldsmiths. There were key individuals later in the 1530s working in London who were Flemish goldsmiths, and that was an area in which Holbein was very productive. He made a lot of designs for jewelry and for metalwork that really could only be executed by these exceptionally talented metalworkers, goldsmiths, jewelers. When Holbein gets to London, he apparently immediately spends two years living with Thomas More, prosaic as it is. Why? <laughs> but maybe more interestingly, what does he get out of that? Well, he gets out of that access to to a circle of patrons who will be interested in having their likeness made. So this is a kind of key moment, I think, in the development of the visual culture in England in particular, amongst someone like you know, Sir Thomas More, who has a much wider kind of worldview, if you will, um, of awareness of of trends and, and possibilities elsewhere. But you know, this idea that having an image of yourself is important for you know for various reasons: for posterity, for self-definition, for assertion of status, this sort of thing. This really takes hold, and there's it's the the timing seems to have been quite fortuitous. So from this base of Thomas More's house, where there were various visitors and guests, and some of them would have had positions associated with the court, so more in his very prominent kind of area of responsibility uh, would have been communicating with them, but also uh, 
you know, maybe individuals that are somewhat further afield, but, you know, still associated with the court, finding it appropriate, in fact, to to have themselves portrayed. And, and this circle, actually, was very crucial to establishing Hawaiian's sort of notoriety. And he, he also meets through more, not just court functionaries like the Guilfords, for example, but also sort of fellow foreigners, if you will. And so Nicholas Kratzer, the great um, German mathematician, who is associated with Moore, but also Guilford and some others, you know, um, someone that Holbein um, portrays in a magnificent portrait in the Louvre, but associates that had similar interests probably informed his ideas about visualizing his sitters in the the places that they worked in the in the interiors where they could be defined with with the appropriate setting, with the appropriate accoutrements, um, things that we would call attributes now. Ways, ways that we understand the kind of work and the kind of thinking that they were doing. So you mentioned a moment ago that Holbein is is painting, you know, astronomers and he's painting attendants at court and merchants and royals. All of these people from very different stations, shall we say. Are there meaningful differences in his pictures or in his approaches to pictures of, say, a merchant and, say, a court figure? I think Holbein found the pictorial solution that suited each of these types of sitter. But I think it really depends on the definition, if you will, visually of their status and also of their aspirations. So really, you know, speaking of someone who we can imagine based on their status is probably associated with the court, we may not know precisely who they are. And I'm thinking of we have some beautiful portraits of women that are very spectacularly outfitted, but we don't have any more information potentially about who they are as uh, as individuals. And someone like a Hanseatic League merchant who wants to be seen in a particular way, you know, the whole mind is able to find the way forward for both of these individuals. And and so it gives us in, in, insight into what distinguishes them, you know, to their peers in a sense, you know, where there were sumptuary laws that were very strict about the kind of clothing and jewelry a person could wear, there were no laws that could tell them whether or not they could quote a classical source or um, a poem by Petrarch. <laughs> so, so you know, Holbein is able to bring in these more intellectual elements, I think, in a very interesting way. And it, in part, I think, it, in, a very, in a very fun-loving but very serious way in the sense that he is able to suggest individual handwriting, or he's able to suggest a certain type of document because he has this capacity to letter in different forms. So you get the illusion of a little cartolino that looks like someone has written on it um, themselves, or something that's a more formal trompe l'oeil effect, uh, something that's carved into stone, for example, or the, you know, the more famous kind of uh, gold lettering that's very beautiful and seems to sort of be letters hanging, kind of glittering in the air to either side of a, of a sitter. So it, it is, in a sense, um, a sort of traditional process in the sense that you, if you were someone at court and you could somehow indicate that you're associated with the king, you would do that. So Richard, Richard Southwell, you know, this is indicated very specifically in the inscription. But if you were a merchant, you could have a very similar portrait, but your the content of your lettering might be something that's, that's more elusive to humanist interests, for example. The Richard Southwell lettering, for example, reads... 10th of July and the year, 1536, 
and then names the monarch, I think, right? Under under whom Southwell is, or to whom Southwell is attendant. Yeah, it's, it seems to be a very overt statement of loyalty to the king, essentially. And this is in keeping with what we know about Southwell, who I, I think I describe in our gallery text as nefarious. You know, he had a very complicated and rather menacing role, it seems, in the 1530s in the way that he is associated with major figures and some of their downfalls. These include Cromwell himself, uh, Thomas More before him. He seems to have been Southall and some others were involved in the murder of a nobleman um, and are pardoned. So, <laughs> but, for, you know, through all of these events, you know, he is able to maintain a very high level of devotion and sense to the mark and his his programming, so this allusion to Henry VIII is very clear here. But interestingly, this portrait of Southwell also suggests that he wants viewers, posterity, to understand his his life, his position, as one that was also linked to court culture and its erudition, if you will, and its, its sophistication. He wears a, a beautiful and kind of sculptural hat badge that has the kind of bust, antique bust, of a woman uh, set into it, uh, of a type that was very similar to uh, metalwork that Holbein was designing for the court and also for a, a piece that we know he um, designed for Anne Boleyn potentially. So, drawing on you know Italianate, if not actually ancient um, source materials. So it's an interesting and important aspect of the painting. Not even a detail, I would say. I would say it's a, a clear part of the communication here that uh, the sitter wanted us to have to know. You know, while we're talking about the way Holbein builds out what what's behind a sitter like Southwell, such as with gold lettering, you know, another thing Holbein does in portrait after portrait is is intensely compress space behind his sitters. Sometimes it almost feels like the backgrounds of his portraits are pushing up against or resting against the backs of Holbein's sitters. Do we have ideas? Do you have ideas about why he builds pictorial space that way? Well, you know, Holbein really seems to have a very aggressive, in a sense, idea about how to increase the sense of presence in the portrait. So I think it's fascinating, these blue backgrounds in particular, which are different shades of this deep blue. Some are a little more turquoise, some more uh, kind of sapphire-like. And they're very important. In fact, the colors sort of shift over time. And I've been thinking a little bit about, you know, what that might mean for what we might think of a stylistic development um, in the 30s, for example. But it really just pushes the figure forward. And in the way that he has this just unbelievable precision of application, it enhances that sense of of the figure in this phrase. And I think it will be interesting for our viewers to see these paintings in person, maybe after having see more of them in reproduction because they're not necessarily one-to-one scale for most of the sitters like Thomas Cromwell or Sir Thomas More those are larger kind of format uh, Lady Guilford Uh, but remember the paintings are a little bit smaller than life size and so but you nonetheless feel that you are confronted with an individual there's a very direct correlation between our presence and the person that we're looking at on this flat surface it's also I think a chromatic there's a chromatic choice being made here where flesh is enhanced in a sense by this juxtaposition and we do see that in German painting in this period too. Other artists, you know, Cronach for example, Lucas Cronach the Elder using different colored greens. Sometimes artists would use red. 
So they're not meant to be naturalistic per se. Um, and the interesting thing, of course, with Holbein is that you have this intense sense of naturalism often, but then um, it's all a very sophisticated artifice that expresses his technical and you know, compositional skill. Uh, I think he's not a, a shy artist in that regard. You know, we really, each one of these is sort of testament to the ability of the, of the painter to convince us, to engage us, to communicate with us. And to go back to the inscriptions, sometimes these inscriptions that are included are extremely overt statements of superior, you know, visual superiority on the part of the artist, praising his ability to to show us someone as if almost in parallel to the, you know, his maker, <laughs> as he says, one of the inscriptions, an extreme statement of, of ability, uh, which I find actually quite fascinating, kind of very specific aspect of, of Holbein. It's certainly in the absence of any other information from him <laughs> and, and even relatively little information from his contemporaries. You know, one notable exception from Holbein's often almost typical compression of space is his portrait of Thomas Cromwell from 1532-33. And in fact, in this picture, Holbein seems to go out of his way with the way he uses different shades of green to make space expansive. Why is he doing something so different in his portrait of, of Cromwell? Cromwell, to me, is completely fascinating because this is a, this is a case where he's sandwiched his sitter. You know, you, we are kind of kept at bay. We're kept away from this uh, incredibly powerful administrator, uh, someone who is occupies a position quite close to the king, who's carrying out the king's business. And uh, we're separated from him <laughs> by the table, uh, by the, uh, which is covered with the green cloth. And a, and a book and papers and all kinds of other things that seem to suggest that Cromwell does not have time for us. Oh, quite right. And the arm, you know, the classic arm, which we see in papal portraits and everything else, which is the arm, you know, on the table between us and him. There's a lot of insistence in this portrait in the sort of horizontal elements, you know, surfaces, parameters of the wood paneling behind him, and also very insistent vertical. So you create a kind of a grid-like structure that really, I think, conveys in parts a sense of power, authority that's very solid. And of course, then that figure of Cromwell as we see him sitting there is kind of bulky. He's in his fur-lined cloak. You know, he looks like a formidable individual just as a physical presence. And we don't get to see his entire face. We see him in this sort of near profile. And he's looking away. And looking towards the light, I wonder whether what we don't see on the left as we look at the painting is maybe an, a window or some other opening and that casts the shadow that we see on the right. And it is a, a case where the, the spatial decompression is really quite, quite noticeable. And I, I think it's a very, you know, the portrait's been sort of described as, I think, you know, maybe not so flattering, <laughs> maybe, maybe one that isn't about, I don't know, the nicer parts of, of Thomas Cromwell, potentially. But I think actually, you know, what Holbein and probably Cromwell himself are interested in is the sort of, if you will, a a conflation of the of the formal and professional aspects with uh, his personal interior. Uh, Susan Voicer has noticed that you know this is not an interior that's easy to define. Is it living parts of his house or is this like his office? We're not quite sure. I, I, I find the decorative elements, which are primarily the damask uh, blue background behind his head, very important. Uh, without that element, without the energy of that pattern and that design, it, it would be a 
very fixed and, and kind of quite fierce um, characterization. But that pattern, to me, it seems to allude to a mental energy, to a very powerful intellect, potentially. And then um, the objects on the table, certainly the documents, one of which has, is addressed to him and specifies him as master of the jewel house, which is a specific honor he had recently received, but also this very beautifully bound book, which is perhaps the nearest, closest thing to us, it really links him to royal service, to the king specifically. And these are the things that help us kind of, <laughs> that lead us to him. It's, you know, it's through these specific elements on the tabletop. And then, of course, I think we shouldn't overlook the, the key element, which is that in his hand, he holds a folded piece of paper, maybe a letter. So either he's going to dispense a decision or issue a demand or a request or some other thing, um, or he's received it. But that also alludes to his efforts across the country, his, his work outside this space. Speaking of little details like that, we, we started on this a moment ago. One of the delights in Holbein's portraiture is the stuff in the pictures that are not the sitter, the, the, the jewelry, the, the stuff like jewelry and hat pins on hats. Sometimes they're attributes denoting profession, but often they're just like playful visual references or puns or jokes, like his use of Medusa in one portrait of a woman. At the risk of asking you for favorites, do you have favorite ways that Holbein plays with denoting his sitters or their work or their accomplishments through these details, through these devices? Yeah, I've come to appreciate the, the diversity of these sort of attributes that Holbein brings and the, the kind of um, incredible specificity and refinement that require us, you know, 500 years later to kind of work out exactly what they're all about. Uh, I'm a big fan of the jewels myself. I find them a really interesting way of thinking about modes of communication in the period. You know, I think we still do this today, but, you know, the notion of wearing something on your body that's actually another composition that might even have a, an inscription that goes with it uh, that would have caught the attention of someone meeting you, speaking with you, wanting to approach you. It would have been, a, in many cases, for people of high status, a proprietary piece of jewelry that really was just unique to you. This is really a fun and interesting, but also quite serious. And we'll have a number of examples in the exhibition that will help us all think about the ways in which someone in this period kind of dazzled and impressed <laughs> um, their, their friends and their contemporaries uh, with these absolutely exquisite and um, small-scale compositions um, the way they glittered, the way they had a three-dimensional kind of quality, a sort of sculptural quality in some cases, um, is is remarkable. And one of the aspects of Holbein's art that I think is worth thinking about a little bit more, and we'll have these drawings in the exhibition from the British Museum, are the ways that he designed these uh, compositions. And they are maybe the most two inches in diameter or even smaller. And I think one of the most beautiful, actually, um, that I did want to mention is in the collection of the National Gallery of Art in Washington, this um, design for either a medallion that could have been worn on the front of a woman's gown or could have been a hat badge potentially on a man's cap showing Tantalus. And it's just a, like a complete miracle of draftsmanship. The pen work is unbelievable. And then it's delicately colored with watercolor and then there are touches of gold. So these elements, the color and the gold were guiding the goldsmith uh, who would have made it. And, it's completely compelling. I was not prepared when I first saw it uh, in, at the National Gallery for, you know, spending an hour looking at this, you know, 
two inch wide <laughs> object. I was um, had to apologize to my colleagues. I, not really, I'm leaving. I am, but I, I do hope that um, we will have the chance to enchant people with uh, these aspects of Holbein's art because they were really encapsulate his just innate. Uh, skill and ingenuity um, on a on this small scale that would have been very much appreciated in the in, at the time essentially. So I slightly gave away the answer to my <laughs> my next question a moment ago when we were talking about Cromwell, just because I couldn't resist talking about that painting as we were having that conversation. But when Holbein is about thirty in the late fifteen twenties, he he returns to Basel, doesn't stay too long, and then goes back to England. But the England he returns to has changed. How has it changed, and how does Holbein adapt? A lot happened in those few years that he was away. Oh, boy, yeah. He experiences essentially a changing of the guard in terms of his generational shift of some of his patrons. And those individuals, Thomas More being probably the most prominent, but also Sir Henry Guilford, God solves Thomas More, are really are, are either at the end of their lives or they have run up against the great problem that's, you know, occupying the king, which is his desire to, you know, end his marriage to his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, and marry Anne Boleyn. So, you know, Holbein returns at a moment of, of transformation, but he seems very capably to uh, take advantage of the connections he may still have in the country and to make new connections. So his studio, so to speak, is in an area of London that's really not that far from the what we know in English as the steel yard, the enclave in which merchants from Germany, the Hanseatic League, are allowed to carry out their business. Uh, and it's for a group of German merchants that he makes an important series of paintings, and we'll have a number of these in the exhibition. He does not follow a formula for these individuals. He follows uh, their lead and, and portraying them in different ways. Some of them don't appear to be merchants <laughs> at first glance. And this, in these portraits, we don't know for sure they may have been uh, for those individuals to send home, or they may actually have been on view, for example, in the Guild Hall of the Hanseatic League in the Steel Yard together. But in any case, they're an important group of patrons for Holbein in the early 30s. He also is able to paint for very high-level diplomats. So uh, the ambassadors, the most uh, extraordinary painting, we almost can think about this early 30s period that's at the National Gallery in London. Sadly, a, a work of art that is not able to travel outside the, the walls of the National Gallery. But those two sitters are French aristocrats and diplomats in London. And also, Holman paints the portrait of the Lord of Moretta, a spectacular painting in Dresden, another French diplomat. So he's He's able to tackle that group. Uh, it's a period of tremendous tumultuous change, and you know Henry VIII is um, through through a process becoming the head of the Church of England. Um, there are new parliamentary rules. There are there's an oath that must be taken of loyalty to him as as the head of the Church. And Thomas More famously does not does not want to take this oath. He does not take it, and he's ultimately tried and executed. Anne Boleyn, who's been on the scene for some time, who's a very interesting figure who herself has had a quite a good education and has spent a long period at the French court, brings with her French ideas, manners, also, I think, a considerable sort of intellectual interest. Holbein is involved with projects for her um, through the king, designing jewels and another uh, precious objects, probably. We don't seem to have a portrait, a painted portrait of Anne Boleyn, but 
um, surviving, but in any case, you know, she had also um, poets and things associated with her that uh, Holbein worked for. So his, his attachment to the court is really expanding. And then, of course, most significantly, he becomes one of the king's painters. The date we can't be totally sure of because documents are missing for a kind of crucial period, but it may have been as early as 1532 when he arrives or a little bit later, but certainly by 1536, we have clear evidence that that is the position he holds. He, he seems to sail through this kind of rocky terrain uh, reasonably well. And, and Thomas Cromwell actually is a very important figure in this period. Susan Foister has written uh, quite interestingly about Cromwell as a collector, you know, his inventory show, the contents of his house, the paintings and other works of art that he owned. We know that he was interested in Petrarch, so he's reading in Italian. He was capabilities in different languages. Also someone who traveled, who had connections, strong connections to Antwerp. So these are all but kind of points of contact with Holbein that I think are quite interesting and you know probably helped you know Holbein kind of fit into Cromwell's kind of you know broader circle, if you will. Although we don't, again, we don't have the documents to help us know precisely how this process worked. The last specific painting I want to bring up is a painting from about this period. It's a painting in Toledo of a woman believed to be in Cromwell's family. I think it's fair to say there's not another painting in the show of someone dressed quite this spectacularly. What might we make of this painting of a woman in Cromwell's family? And is the way, the really ornate way in which she's dressed, should that suggest anything to us? You know, one of the interesting aspects of this exhibition where we we ask our viewers to think about how identity is constructed and how, how Holbein does this is that we can't always answer the question, which is to say that we were given a lot of specific information for some of the sitters visually, but that doesn't necessarily mean a name or even some further description of their occupation or, or association. So uh, this is true for some of the female portraits um, that we'll, we'll show. Uh, it gives us an opportunity to understand how Clothing and jewelry was an extremely important way of defining your position in society. And this beautiful painting in, in Toledo is a prime example of this circumstance, essentially, where we can assume, I think, fairly securely that she is a woman associated with the court. Perhaps it was part of a pair of portraits, but we don't know that for sure. It's not impossible this could have been a portrait that stood on its own. She is dressed in a way that um, highlights uh, Holbein's ability to paint gold objects, so the little egglets, the little short decorative gold tips that we see on her gown are really absolutely stunning. And, and then very importantly, actually, the jewel that she wears is the only case where we can link a jewel in a Holbein painting um, that survives today with a drawing for jewelry by Holbein. So that's one of the drawings for medallions and hat badges that we will have from the British Museum. And the composition is shows Lot and his family fleeing Sodom, and uh, Lot's wife is turning to a pillar of salt in the center, and her body as it becomes a block represented by a cut gem. So this is what we see also in the portrait. I think, you know, as a as a work of, you know, relatively late in, in Holbein's career, you know, he dies at a pretty young age. 45 years old, yeah. You know, we see this uh, palette that's kind of a more restricted palette, very rich, deep tones. It's a particularly beautiful painting. What do we know of Holbein's end? Does he return to Basel? Does he make it back home? He makes it back home in the late 1530s when he's on the continent, on the king's business. I think he's still kind of 
associating himself. Maybe there's some expectation that he will return to stay. You know, his family is still there, and Basel authorities are eager to keep him there. We have to remember at this time that, you know, if you're a citizen of one place, you travel elsewhere with a passport, so to speak, with a dispensation, and so he sort of receives permission to leave and then come back. There are contemporary reports that he's well-dressed, and he's obviously showing that he's reached a certain level of, of achievement, achievement and status, but he does return to London, and, you know, in his final weeks, he makes a will. We can understand from the will, for example, he owned a horse. Um, we also know that he had two illegitimate children that he wanted to have provided for there. And he paints a self-portrait at the end, which describes himself as a citizen of Basel. So whether this suggests that he's intending to return there is not, it's not at all clear, but um, there is plague in London at this time. And it appears that he's a victim of the plague and his estate is his you know, belongings and the execution of his will is handled by friends and artists um, in London. And um, of course, you know, it's very interesting, the very spectacular drawings, uh, many of which we'll have in the exhibition. So drawings in preparation for the painted portraits are probably uh, kept in his studio and those become the property of the king and then have a very kind of distinguished uh, royal provenance, although they go in and out of royal possession over the centuries. Finally, I was surprised to read this was the first big Holbein show, paintings show in, in the U.S. ever. Holbein's a pretty big deal, and over the last generation or two, artists as disparate as Catherine Opie and Carrie James Marshall have had a lot of success riffing on Holbein. Why have, Why hasn't there been one until now? Well, it's, I think it's it's time now to, to have a look at this wonderful Renaissance artist. I think, you know, the portraits in the United States uh, are held in, in important collections in the East Coast, in New York, in Washington, single examples elsewhere uh, in the United States. We're hoping, you know, to have the opportunity to show everyone um, the holdings of Holbein paintings here uh, in the U.S., uh, the drawings are very, very rare. In fact, there's two Holbein drawings in the United States, uh, one at the Getty Portrait Drawing and then the Tantalus drawing uh, for, jewelry, for jewelry in Washington. I think Holbein is often associated with sort of national art history, if you will, in other places. So the places in which he worked, he is really often associated with changes in the local artistic school there. Major exhibitions of Holbein's art have taken place in Basel and also uh, in London. So although this Holbein exhibition was in the early 80s, 1982, um, in fact, the, the Getty Museum and the Morgan Library together hosted a, what must have been a very, very gorgeous exhibition of drawings, uh, portraits by Holbein from the collection of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. They were not paintings that were a major part of that exhibition at all. I think with all Renaissance paintings, exhibitions, and portrait exhibitions, it's quite difficult to borrow these works of art. So we're immensely grateful to the generous and stalwart figures that have supported our project and have enabled us to show, I think, some of the most beloved and famous works in their collections in Europe and in the United Kingdom, uh, allow us to bring them to Los Angeles and to New York. Once in a lifetime, so don't miss it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Anne Woolett, thanks very much. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents MFAH plus U equals a dynamic duo. 
Discover the duality within the MFAH's major lineup of fall exhibitions and find your duo. Explore the parallels between two of the foremost figures in 20th century art in Calder Picasso. Witness the first exhibition devoted to Georgia O'Keeffe's work with a camera in Georgia O'Keeffe Photographer. Unravel juxtapositions in the legacy of the African diaspora through historical and contemporary works in Afro-Atlantic histories. See some of the most significant paintings from the Impressionist and Post-Impressionist movements in Incomparable Impressionism from the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. Plan your visit at mfah.org slash dynamic duo. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents the exhibition Milton Avery, created by Edith Devaney and organized by the Royal Academy of Arts London in collaboration with the Modern and the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art. Avery is considered one of North America's greatest 20th century colorists. His career fell between the movements of the American Impressionists and the Abstract Expressionists, leaving him to forge a staunchly independent path. This comprehensive exhibition brings together a selection of approximately 70 paintings from the 1910s to the mid-1960s that are among his most celebrated. These works typically feature scenes of daily life, including portraits of loved ones and serene landscapes from his visits to Maine and Cape Cod. The color sensibility and balance that run throughout his work had a major influence on the next generation of artists. On view through January 30th in Fort Worth. Welcome back. Next up, Shannon Vittoria joins me to discuss Jules Tavernier and the LM Pomo. She's the show's co-curator. You may recall that earlier this fall, Vittoria's co-curator, Elizabeth Kornhauser, joined me to discuss the Jules Tavernier part of the show. It's a lot of fun that we get to have Shannon Vittoria here to talk about the LM Pomo part of the show. Vittoria wrote the essay on the LM Pomo work included in the exhibition for the Met Bulletin that functions as the show's catalog. Jules Tavernier and the LM Pomo is on view at the Met until November 28th, when it will travel to the de Young Museum in San Francisco. Shannon Vittoria, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, Tyler. Thank you for having me. How did you and Betsy Kornhauser decide to exhibit not only the Met's new Jules Tavernier picture and related Tavernier material, but also LM Pomo material? In 2018, the American Wing was given a transformative gift from two private collectors, Charles and Valerie Diker, of historic Native American art. At the time, uh, Native American art at the Met had always been shown in our AOA galleries, the Arts of Africa, Oceania, and the Americas, not in the context of the art of the United States, which comprised the majority of the collection of the American Wing. So this was a really transformative gift, and, and part of that gift included a large selection of historic California baskets including works by Pomo Weavers. And there was just this very interesting connection between those baskets and and the painting, which came into our collection right around the same time. And we were sort of thinking about ways in which we could not only complicate the, the stories about American art that we tell in our galleries, but how we could do so in a kind of cross-cultural or intercultural context, looking at Euro-American arts alongside the arts of Native communities. And so that was sort of the, the inspiration behind the show. We shortly thereafter teamed up with a group of Native collaborators on the project. Uh, in her episode, Betsy spoke at length about our relationship with Elam Pomo cultural leader Robert Geary, uh, but we also teamed up with a Dry Creek Pomo and Bodega Miwok scholar, Sherry Smith-Ferry, who perhaps the world's leading expert on Pomo basketry. She was the a curator and director at the Great 
Carpenter Hudson Museum in Ukiah, California for the majority of her career, had recently retired right when we, we teamed up with her to work on this show. And she was absolutely hugely influential in helping to, to sort of shape the narrative and the ways in the sort of the types of both regalia and baskets that were included in the exhibition and how we could show them alongside paintings by Tavernier in a really kind of interesting and thoughtful way. It's worth our noting that for decades, historians have regarded basketry as the primary material culture expression of many California Native people. The basketry tradition up and down what is now the state is extraordinary and has been well collected, especially baskets made from kind of about 1885 or 1890 forward, not just in California, but but across the United States. So there are major collections in, for example, the museum at the University of Pennsylvania. One of the histories you foreground immediately within the project in its multiple forms is the California genocide. What are some of the ways in which we see the genocide in art made by whites between 1846 and 1873, the dates that historians pretty much universally assign to the genocide now? In the art made by whites, I would say perhaps the best example is the total erasure of Native peoples when white settler Euro-American artists painted the California landscape. California, with the arrival of white settlers, was an incredibly diverse and dense place. Just in the, the Clear Lake region alone, I think in the 1830s, there were hundreds of independent village communities that sort of coexisted, lived sustainably off the land. It was not a kind of wild, empty wilderness landscape, but oftentimes white artists painted it in that way. One of the things that's really unusual and specific about the white experience of Native people in California is we do have pictures, paintings and photographs, but especially photographs of the genocide in process. What are, are some of those pictures and how have you addressed and included them within the show and the project? The exhibition is accompanied by an issue of the, the Metropolitan Museum of Art Bulletin, where in my essay, I delve into the sort of the history of depicting California genocide in, in a bit more detail. Let me just interrupt real quick to say that this is a, a significant contribution. As someone who works on this period and in this place, this approach exists almost nowhere else. So this is this is key work. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And it was it was challenging to to do the research since there is really no one resource that you can go to 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 learn about this history, especially in visual culture. In my research Perhaps one of the earliest examples that I found was published in the popular press. It was an image or wood engraving done after an oil study of this, I believe he was an English-born and trained artist who came to the United States, Alexander Edouard, and he did these sketches on the Mendocino Reservation, reservation perhaps a sanitized term for internment camp, where the living conditions for Native peoples and, and Pomo peoples specifically were just absolutely horrific. He did these sketches that were then uh, reproduced in Hutchins' California Illustrated magazine, and the text that accompanied these images really tried to promote this, re these, this reservation as uh, having a, a 
positive impact on the Native communities, which could not have been further from the truth. And some of those early images, as I argue, present this incredibly sanitized depiction of of genocide and of sort of torture, enslavement, and starvation. Not long after, you have um, someone you know well, Carlton Watkins, who goes to the same uh, Mendocino reservation and takes a series of photographs while he's there. Interestingly, we have one of those photographs, uh, what he titles the, the Indian Sweat House, in our collection at the Met. It has, it's a sort of large structure built into the ground out of natural materials. It has a small, presumably Pomo or indigenous figure um, seated in the, the left foreground. This was a work that we had originally talked about possibly including in the exhibition. We have it here in our collection, um, thinking about the kind of art historical lineage for an artist like Tavernier, you know, other artists who also, you know, painted or photographed Pomo peoples. But after having you know, really long, thoughtful conversations with our advisors, both Robert and Sherry, who I mentioned previously, they felt really strongly about not having this work in the show. And so we, of course, you know, took it off the checklist and took it out of the exhibition. And and we did that for a number of reasons, not only because is this a, a picture of that really visualizes, you know, this very traumatic history, but one that often contributed to the the homogenization of Pomo peoples, which is something that we were really trying to push up against in this show. So for a little bit of context, the sort of idea of the Pomo people as being this one homogenous group was really sort of a concept developed by late 19th, early 20th century anthropologists. As I said prior, the, you know, the people that we now refer to as the Pomo were it was like, I think, 75 or to 100 independent village communities speaking seven different languages, languages that are as similar as it's been described to me as English and German. And and that's all to say that there's a lot of cultural diversity and nuance amongst these communities, both past and present. And the photograph of the Mendocino Reservation is of, um, of the coast and a lot of Pomo peoples who lived on the coast who were interned there. And that sort of way of life, as Sherry and Robert explained to us, was dramatically or is dramatically different to the the way of life of, of the Elam Pomo who live around Clear Lake. And so it was sort of almost perhaps misrepresentative of the, the, the kind of the culture and the story that we were trying to focus on by by presenting, you know, the arts of the Elam Pomo and, and Lake County at large. This is true in California writ large, where uh, latter-day groupings of cultural and linguistic groups initially ignored the differences you described. By one estimate, there were as many as 350 languages spoken across modern-day California at the time of European contact, making making California the most linguistically diverse land, certainly in North America and possibly in the world. And I guess it's also worth noting that we don't know for sure that the people whose subjugation Watkins marked and indeed profited from when he took his suite of pictures at the ranchery uh, near Mendocino in 1863, we don't know for sure that they that they were Pomo or Yuki. The Mendocino ranchery is, you know, more or less kind of right on on right right between two homelands, and there's no reason at all to believe Watkins cared. The Mets Tavernier. Picture is made, of course, obviously, after white incursion into the Clear Lake region. Do we see examples in the painting of how the Pomo adapted to white incursion? 
Yeah, absolutely. This, the central dance that Tavernier depicted, the, the Mafonhe or uh, the people's dance, was itself introduced into the community in the early 1870s. And it was a dance that was introduced in order to protect the community from the devastating consequences of white settlement. So the dance that you see, the ceremony that you see taking place in that painting is itself a kind of, perhaps you could call it an act of, of resilience or resistance against white settlement and the continuation of certain traditions, ceremonies, and practices, including basketry. Tavernier does include two baskets in his painting. There's a large carrying basket in the lower left corner and a uh, coiled basket tray, sort of the lower center. Basketry, the pomos are, as it's has been told to me by many scholars and community members, are basketry people. Although we've learned that baskets were not necessarily present in the roundhouse during the ceremony, they were absolutely essential to every aspect of pomo life. And despite the fact that many communities had increasingly limited access to resources, natural resources uh, in the wake of white settlement, they nevertheless continued to, to weave baskets to innovate and to adapt. And you can, you can see that with the baskets that are present in that painting in addition to the ceremonial dance itself. Are there, are there baskets in, in the show? And is there any relationship between the baskets you chose to exhibit and what we see in the painting? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, the, the baskets that appear in Tavernier's painting were, in, you know, part of the inspiration for the exhibition. So we have, it, we have in the show a beautiful example of a, a carrying basket as well as a basket tray, both of which you see in the painting, as I mentioned. But we worked in really close collaboration and consultation with our advisor, Sherry Smith-Ferry, to select a wide array of, of pomo baskets to, to highlight in, in this exhibition. As Sherry and, and many other community members have said to me, that the pomo are a basketry people. They used, used and continue to use baskets for all aspects of life, for, you know, pre-white settlement for gathering, for fishing, for cooking, for sifting, for storing food. They use them to make cradles for babies as gifts to give in social occasions for healing and in ceremonies. So just absolutely critical to to every aspect of, of Pomo life. And with the exhibition, we wanted to highlight the incredible diversity of Pomo weaving techniques. As Sherry has explained to me, there are you know, two types of weaving, there's twining and coiling. And within those two types, pomo weavers developed, I think it's eight twining techniques and two coiling techniques. And it's a sort of a number of weaving techniques that surpasses perhaps many other indigenous traditions. So we wanted to highlight a lot of those different techniques, highlight lots of different types of baskets so that people could see the context in which they would have been used, but to also show both baskets that were made Say like by and for the community, whether it was in a kind of functional or utilitarian way or ceremonial way, and then baskets that later on after the arrival of white settlers for the art market, baskets that were, were woven specifically for non-native white collectors. Let me jump in there for a second just to kind of set that up. Take, for example, a basket by Ethel Jameson Bogus that dates to around 1900, that is, with literally hundreds and possibly thousands of other baskets in the Phoebe Hearst Museum collection at, at Berkeley. It's a, it's a small, highly ornate basket. It's only about four, four and a half inches in, in diameter. So what does a basket like this one, or such as this one, tell us about how 
Alan Pomo people, certainly, but also other Native Californians adapted to white incursion? So prior to the arrival of white settlers in the, the late 18th and, and early 19th century, Pomo baskets were much larger. As Sherry has explained, this is indicative of not only the amount of time that weavers had to, to make these large-scale baskets, but the access the, they had and the abundance of natural resources that, that they were able to use to, to weave these, these much larger works. In the wake of white settlement, with access to natural resources being increasingly restricted for Native communities, they started to make these smaller scale baskets that were much more elaborately designed and decorated to include things like multicolored feathers from various different types of local birds, uh, clamshell disc beads, abalone pendants. So in the, the basket you referred to by Ethel Jameson, in Bogusin, it's um, I think it's about four inches in diameter, so much smaller in scale than some of the the larger, more uh, utilitarian works. And the entire exterior surface is covered in these beautiful multicolored feathers. And these were precisely the types of baskets that appealed to non-native collectors around the turn of the 20th century. I think they dubbed them jewel baskets. <laughs> they liked very sort of decorative, ornate things to display in the home. But weavers were very sort of astute and keenly understood the types of designs and baskets that would appeal to these non-native collectors. And one could argue that it was a really significant means by which these weavers could then support themselves financially and continue to keep basket making practices alive within the community. And many of the forms you see, including the, the work by Bogus that were made for the art market are, are essentially sort of aestheticized adaptations of earlier sort of utilitarian or functional forms. And they made them in a slightly smaller size, even making some in, in miniature and micro miniature. We have a selection of, of tiny, tiny miniature baskets in the show, which white collectors became sort of obsessed with in the early 20th century, in which I uh, can report our, our visitors are equally as intrigued by today. Are makers like Bogus carrying forward materials and even perhaps trading networks that provided those materials that LM Pomo had been using for generations before white incursion, or are they using whole new materials? No, they're carrying forth materials, absolutely. And as you know, not to continually repeat Sherry, but I always like to say I, I'm very much sort of a student myself of this material, not not an expert. And I've learned so much from working with Sherry and Robert on this project about the tradition of, of pomo basketry and how these works were made and their significance within the community. But Sherry has sort of very aptly said that these these works reveal an incredible knowledge on the part of the weaver about the the sort of natural environment in which they lived, the, the types of sort of the animal species that they were living with. Better way to say this would be a great ethnobotanical knowledge of, of their environment. And you can sort of see that reflected in the earlier works, but also, of course, in the later art market baskets as well. Are Pomo still making baskets now? Yes. Yes, absolutely. So one of the primary objectives of this exhibition was to emphasize that this is very much a living, thriving culture, that the, the Pomo peoples and, and specifically the Elam Pomo do not exist solely in the past, but are very much here today. So the exhibition actually opens one of the first, the first case that a visitor will encounter when 
entering the show is a case of contemporary baskets by a Dry Creek, Pomo and Wapo and Winton Weaver, Clint McKay. We borrowed these works directly from Clint for the exhibition. Uh, there's four baskets in the in the first case, slightly smaller in size, including two you might refer to as miniatures. Really, really beautiful works. But we thought it was a powerful way in which, at the very outset of the exhibition, we could make a statement that said these. You know, this is not necessarily a show that's solely about the 19th century. This is an exhibition that has incredible resonance and, and parallels with the present day, and that these communities continue to you know, practice these traditions and carry them forth into the present and pass them down to, to future generations. Shannon Vittoria, thank you. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.